electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod. Another day, another headline from China. And it sounds like Joe might have had enough for the week. It's annoying me now. I, I started out saying I have some empathy. Now I think it's annoying. Tesla's new truck unveiling went smashingly. Oh, my President Trump meets with vaping industry execs, and former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb maps out the nuances of vape bans and e-cig policies. Smoking rates have plummeted, and youth smoking rates have plummeted, and you have to acknowledge that some of that, at least, is a result of the vaping. Those stories and so much more, from Uber stock to charging dustbusters. The Sorkin family wants to be able to have a charged-up dustbuster inside the vehicle at all times. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Friday, November 22nd. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, China headline du jour. China's leader speaking out about trade overnight. President Xi said China wants to work out a trade pact with the United States and has been trying to avoid a trade war. Though, then he said he also warned China's not afraid to retaliate uh, when necessary. Eunice Yoon uh, joins us now uh, to put his comments in context. Uh, You know, I hesitate to to use the term du jour, but here are the comments du jour that that there's always something for for people that think it's going to happen. And then there's always a a qualifier, it seems like, just about every day, Eunice. What, What do you think? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, Joe, what was interesting is that President Xi Jinping weighed in on the phase one trade agreement. This is the first time that we heard those remarks. Unfortunately, though, the content of the remarks were uh, not anything different from the standard uh, government line about the the trade discussions. So um, he was speaking with a um, a group of international visitors, including Henry Kissinger, and his main point was that China does want to have a phase one trade deal. However, there needs to be an understanding that uh, the U.S. and China are seen as equals in these negotiations and that it has to be done with mutual respect. So that is what we have heard repeatedly. And uh, what was also interesting was how he hinted at some of the tensions in the relationship by saying that uh, when it comes to the financial opening, uh, China still wants to have a financial, what he called financial sovereignty. I feel some empathy for President Xi. I think he's got a lot on his plate, especially with, with Hong Kong, obviously. But if I were to just you know, examine my feelings closely when I hear him talk about these nebulous, we need to be respected and we both need to be, um, you know, both countries need to, it's just sounds like gobbledygook. And if you listen to what some of the real hawks over here say, whether it's Senator uh, Rick Scott or we had Marco Rubio, 
I mean, there's a lot of things that China just doesn't want to do. We, and I don't think they've done really anything in terms of ag buys, all these things that, that supposedly are being promised to. These hawks tell us they'll never, they're never going to do it. So it seems like they tease us and we get close. It just sounds like more stalling and more ways of just being intransigent, intransigent about what the United States is asking China to do. It's annoying me now. I, I started out saying I have some empathy, but it, it's, now we probably blacked out. And now I think it's annoying. Actually, Joe, you're right about the blacked out part. But, but you know, what's interesting, what I think, when, what I think is interesting is, and kind of um, difficult is that when I have, I, I hear, you know, what you're saying, and then I feel like I have conversations with um, um, academics here, and some of them are high, hardline, and it's as if I'm on a totally different planet mm-hmm. with the conversations, because right. I have heard over and over that um, that the Chinese feel, a lot of the Chinese that I speak to feel that the, that the U.S. has to make the next move. They've already started purchasing some agricultural products. Um, you could they argue that it's not the 50 billion, from, from the Chinese perspective. I mean... This yeah, is but just from the Chinese perspective, they're saying we we are buying all of this stuff, and the what you know th- this is not this is not a balanced relationship. You know, we're the, the U.S. is forcing us to do all these things. I get what you're saying, and that that's the problem. I mean, we are living in different worlds, yeah. and like the presidents yeah. are Republicans and Democrats different. in this yeah, country. Yeah, we're living in different worlds, and you have different perspectives <laughs> that you're bringing to it. I think President Trump's perspective is that it's already an unbalanced relationship that has been benefiting the Chinese for a very long time, as they said that they were a developing nation. Obviously, the economy is now the second largest in, on the planet, and that changes things. Should should it be more of an even playing field? I mean, I guess that's just the perspective where, where you start looking at this. Was it balanced yeah. to begin with? Yeah, I mean that that's it's that's the argument uh, that you hear from the United in the U.S. But I, I mean, over, repeatedly, I have heard um, from many people here, um, some of them either in the government or close to the government or just privately, that China that China is the one that's making a lot of the sacrifices and that what they and so that's why there's been such a big push to get the tariff rollback because they feel like the US is the one that started this and they started it with all these tariffs the only way that we can resolve this is if we end up having a rollback of those tariffs uh, from what i understand there's an under, they, there are a lot of people who say you know what the partial tariffs um, rollback is actually okay. You know, we don't expect that uh, the U.S. is going to lift everything, even though we've been asking for all those tariffs to be lifted. But um, but there is definitely a, a very strong feeling here that that the U.S. is the one that has to make some type of move on the tariff rollback. And then from China's perspective, they'll feel like this trade negotiation is much or the trade deal is much more equal. Unfortunately, there's kind of of a perception that China doesn't always speak totally forthrightly about things, and that's saying it in a nice way. Uh, and, and then we got President Trump over here, who you would say, you know, you can tell when he's lying because his lips are moving, right? I mean, that that um, I didn't say that, but but wouldn't you are, concur? I, 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 when I, you were saying I would that, suggest to you that there. I know when you were saying that there, there used to be a thing where you'd cough and say that bad word, go, you know how you go. Boop. Yeah, you, I know. I almost, yeah. While you were talking, I almost thought about doing it, but I'm, I think it would be unprofessional. Uh, You're right to do that, so I didn't do it, but I thought about it. I'll take it. That's, That's how you, you just did it. No, I didn't. I said I thought about doing it, but I thought I should it shouldn't be something that you should do you in made a professional. Your point effectively. Okay. Same same point. All right. Thank you. Eunice. Eunice, thank you. Uber co-founder Travis Kalanick has been on a major selling spree 
since Uber's lockup expired on November 6th, selling his shares in the company, nearly $1.5 billion worth of it. Uh, this coming as CEO, Derek Hauser Shahi, buying nearly $7 million worth of Uber stock. It's not really even equal <laughs> at all. Uh, of course, uh, okay, the stock uh, below the IPO soaked price. Soaked up Julius a little right of the now. selling, yeah. yeah. You know, a little bit. Um, Joining us to talk about all this, Bradley Tusk, founder and CEO at Tusk Ventures and a very early Uber investor. Uh, Craig Hackoff is also here, the co-founder of the Disruptor Foundation, the annual Tribeca Disruptive Innovation Awards, as well as the Tribeca Film Festival. He teaches at Classic Columbia Business School on disruptive innovation, and we want to talk to both of them. Uh, good morning. morning. So, yes, we just said it's an unequal situation. Yeah. You, um, you don't see the two things as the same. Th- they're not. Yeah. They're not the same thing at all. But the question I have for you is you have been very critical uh, yeah. recently of Derek Hasrashahi's management of this company. Bad. And I think you were a longtime fan of Travis. Yep. And the question I have is what you want them to do now. And the reason I ask that is a lot of investors want them to show profits. Right. They're not even interested in the growth story. Yeah. Right. And so the, the sort of Pied Piper story, and this was true of Adam Newman and maybe Travis, and I don't know if you put them in the same category, but all of these kind of people has the world changed? Yeah. And so I'm not sure what... Well, there's, there's two things. What you're and, asking for yeah. is a little bit different than what I think the public investors asking yeah, for. Yeah, p- perhaps. So, look, there's, there's two almost competing trends. So it's, in fairness, Adara, it's complicated, right? On one hand, private valuations and public valuations are totally misaligned, and that's the fault of the private market. Right. right? You had venture funds who keep raising bigger and bigger funds that have to write bigger and bigger checks at bigger and bigger valuations, and it's not supportable. Right. But on the other hand... You know, from when Travis left till today, Uber's worth less than half of what it was when Dara came in. Right, but the question I ask about that real quick on yeah. valuation is, is that a function of the person running the company or is that a function of the fact that the pricing was so mispriced yep. it's both, three years it's, ago? It's in part a function of the fact that if it's a company based on radical innovation and the market doesn't believe the CEO is capable of being a real innovator, they're not going to reward them by buying the shares. The market has clearly voted with their feet on Uber. So, yeah, you can blame some of it on valuation well, and Adam they, Newman they and SoftBank. They did to Lyft, too. So it's almost not, it's almost, it doesn't matter about the, the Juno, leader. Juno, I just got my discontinuation notice. Right, your Juno is, is in this business. And right. that's why I mentioned Adam Newman. Yeah, but right, I'm not so sure that, those are good, care about the leader anymore. The, I think they're looking at the numbers excuses. and going, the yeah. numbers make no sense. Sure. Well, well, those are good excuses. But at the end of the day, either you believe this person can really transform transportation or you don't. The market does not believe he can. What do you think of this? Well, I, I think there's two issues. One is valuation. The other is going to be sort of what's the business model that gets you to profitability. Right. And I, I do think, you know, particularly in the WeWork case, was this a real estate company or was this a technology company? Right. And the valuations are incredibly different. And so as long as the... The dream uh, right. is that it's a technology company. You'll get a technology valuation. When the ra- reality starts right, but, to hit- But don't you think there's been some kind of massive misalignment with private valuations yeah. and public valuations? Completely. I, mean, I think Total it's impossible to look well, at it yeah, any other way. Let's, let's just put it out there. The bonds, I mean, the right. last time I got a price on the bonds, it was 71. Right. And if you run that right. through, there's a pretty big disconnect between but, but, but that market this, and the yeah. equity market. Somebody said to me the other day, you know, an activist investor should really show up on the scene on Uber. It's actually one of the only unicorns out there, by the way, that has a single, uh, single share, single vote 
uh, system. So, and I, and I thought, and I said, an activist going to Uber, what could an activist do? Well, Is an activist going to go in there and say, run the business for cash? In which case, I think the stock actually goes even lower. Right. Or an activist walks in and says, no, 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 we want you to grow like a weed and we don't care about profits. In which case, I'm not sure the, st- I'm not sure the stock well, would go up either. Uh, well, I don't know if you saw the Bill Ackman comments on, uh, on WeWork. Right. I, mean, I can't yes. address you know, he thinks could go to zero. Right. And so what is an activist? I think the real question is, can SoftBank turn themselves into a version of an activist? Uh, you know, they've made inside some of, all of these companies inside of all these companies, uh, you know, there are issues right. of governance, you know, dual classes. And so I think the real lender of last resort for this segment right. is going to be right. SoftBank. Are you right. selling your shares? Yes. It, like like all of them, like you don't want to have them anymore. I, I I'm not fully sold out yet, but uh, at a much much smaller number than Travis, uh-huh. uh, my pattern's been similar. And what would give you enthusiasm to not sell the rest? Um, some belief that so Uber is predicated, rightly or wrongly, on the concept of being the Amazon of transportation. That yep. whether you're getting a person or a truck or right. a burrito from point A to point B, they will own the entire experience, right? Uh, if you believe that, then it's easy to believe in where the company could be in five or ten years. If you don't see them as capable of doing it, there's no real reason to own the stock. And I think in the case that you raised before about an activist investor, the only way in this particular case is they'd have to be able to demonstrate that vision again, because otherwise, you know, why would anyone choose to invest? And, and, but that vision, would, to get to that vision, you'd have to run losses, I imagine, yeah. in the short term for this a very is, long time. And would. I'm not sure that this public market is ready to do that right now. No, it, it, it probably isn't, but I think one of the it, it, you, it's hard to know that for sure right. when there's both really big losses every quarter and right. no vision. So most of the early investors in Uber that you're friends with, yeah, out. Are they, they're out. Yeah. Do you know of any early investors who are saying to themselves, you know what, it's dropped too much, I'm going to give these guys a year or two, the it's going to move also back. The early investors are in the black, right? Right. So you you can, are yeah, in the black I in mean, a big look, way. I came in at the Series A. Right. So for me, whether right. it's $27 a share an hour or $47 right. shares, it doesn't really right. matter. Right. Um, but I, and I think most early investors back right. That's right. the point. But has any has anyone emailed or called me and said you're crazy? You should be out there talking about buying Uber, not selling. Right. No, not a right. single person. Uh, Bradley and Craig, thank you guys. Thanks for having thank us. Good to see you. Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod, Joe has some strong feelings about Tesla's new truck. I don't think you should strive to design the ugliest looking vehicle ever made. <laughs> We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We're in the B block. Everybody move your rundowns to the B block in three, two, one. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. By now, you might have seen the viral Tesla video from the company's new product unveiling. Elon Musk's new Cybertruck is advertised as having bulletproof windows. Except at the truck's launch event, when they tried to demonstrate that feature, the windows broke. Twice. In case you haven't seen it or the truck the windows are attached to, we highly suggest a Google. But for now, let's set the scene. Elon Musk and this new stainless steel bulletproof truck 
are on a dramatically lit stage with graffiti script on the screen behind them. The design is out of the box, which Elon admits. Doesn't look like anything else. Tesla's lead designer, Franz von Holzhausen, eventually joins him and the truck on stage and throws a metal weighted ball at the driver's side window. Oh my God. That sound you heard? Franz smashed the glass. That's Musk cursing, but the two agree to try again, this time on the back seat window. Let's try the right. Try that one, really? Okay. Sure. Nope. Yikes. Second try, second smash. Here's CNBC Auto's reporter Phil LeBeau digesting this unexpected launch with Joe, Becky, and Andrew. When they unveiled this truck last night, I can't be the only person who saw it come on stage and say, wow, that is way outside the box of what people were predicting. They are offering three versions of the Cybertruck. The range, depending on whether you have dual motor or the tri-motor, it ranges from 250 miles fully charged. In terms of how the vehicle will do if they build this, and production is supposed to start by late 2021, the Cybertruck starts at 39900 That's the base model. goes all the way up to 59900 for the tri-motor version. That's the one that has a range up to 500 miles. Production is scheduled to start in late 2021. Guys, I've enjoyed reading the analyst notes this morning. Everything from, look, this is a weird design. That's from Tony Sakanagi uh, at Bernstein. He put that out today. While there are other analysts who are saying, you know what? It's a radical design, but we think it's going to resonate with buyers. That will be the hot debate today. What do people think of the Cybertruck? And is it really a niche vehicle, which I think it is or will be, or is it going to be potentially a threat to the broader pickup truck industry, which some people do think it will be. I don't personally, but uh, that's going to be the debate today. Bill, what qualifies as as a truck? Well, there's a flatbed there. You can't really see when they come on stage. I think when it comes on stage, people are like, what is this, like something out of Mad Max? There is a a bed. It opens up. It's a six-foot bed. Uh, I want to say they have about uh, 3,500 pounds um, cubic feet. Um, or the towing capacity there is, is for up to 14,000, um, and the, uh, the payload, 3,500 pounds, excuse me. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting-looking truck. It is a truck. It does have a bed in the back. In fact, they, uh, at one point, it's unclear if they built this little ATV or where they got it from. It was at the end of the show. They rode this ATV up into the flatbed, then plugged it in and said, oh, look, it could charge this. You cannot deny, guys, that this is not a futuristic design that is going to get a lot of reaction. That you can't deny. Yeah. That you can't deny. I'm I'm not going to say anything until Sorkin says something because I'm afraid that we might agree. I don't even know what to say. I don't either. If I Uh, wanted to be in a movie, I'd buy the truck. um, Like in a a movie for 100 years from now, maybe. But a lot of like for a, hol- a lot of stuff. But it's there, part of like a Halloween costume. There's some word for where you really don't like something, like something at start, and then you realize, and, it goes on you in such a and, and other ones that you like immediately and you get tired of really quickly. Um, that could be what's happening with me right now. Then I'm also thinking you like it and you're not going to like it, or I don't, you don't think like you should. I don't think you should strive to design the ugliest looking vehicle <laughs> ever made. I, I just don't think <laughs> that. Just but, looking. Um, okay, so here's my question. We've done it before with DeLoreans oh, and, and another. That, and Joe, but, huh? yeah. would you encourage the Sorkin family to get that or a minivan? That's the question. The I was actually going to say that. If, if I was going to say, if, if you told me that you'd like that, I was going to say, you hate it. you're it. No, I was going to say, 
You're in the market for a, a minivan. minivan. How can you possibly like that and, and be buying it? So, but I'll tell you this. My kids like it. They like that. They like it already. Do you remember when people bought Hummers so you could say, look yes. at me, I'm driving a yes. Hummer? And that was the only reason you bought it is so people could say, look at me? Right. That's what that is. That's what look that is. Me. So no one in their right mind thinks that that's a, a neat looking thing. It's, the, it's like, I don't know what the hell it is. And, and, and you know what? Did they look surprised when the windows broke? They didn't look surprised to me. I thought so. I thought, well, I thought Elon they Musk. They didn't check I think, it any I think Elon Musk looked at it and said, well, this is not what we they expected. They didn't check it any better than that, seriously? Is that the first time they checked it, Phil? How many times is that going to be shown today where you look at that stupid car and see it? That video is going to be shown a gazillion times because of the, of the glass breaking. And you and think every, that he's so clever? I don't think you he's clever. I think he's clever enough to not try that if he knows it's going to break. Did they try no, it before? I thought you were saying that he didn't. I don't break. know if they tried it before, guys. I don't know if they tried it before. You don't know if there's they tried no it. Why wouldn't they try it they... before if they were going to? It's, it's you know the full. Well, there's a phone Joe, maybe just was, so you know, Joe, you can't see in the video. They yeah. dropped that that weighted metal ball. Yeah. They dropped that from I don't know. It looks like about 15, 20 feet down yeah. on. Uh, a sheet of the uh, Why window. Why didn't they try it before? And it did, Phil? And it did no. It did no reaction at all. There was no crack. Nothing. Right. And I that's just... when they said, "Oh, see how that is? We'll give you another demonstration okay. here." Well, it didn't so, work. I guess. I, they, I don't think they. But I would have tried it. I would. I think. I don't know why they didn't try it then. I mean, that's real. Let's try it in front of all these people with the video cameras rolling. Seems like a you know. question. <laughs> okay. Dan, I we, were, we weren't invited there. Joe, if we were invited, that would have been a question. But yeah. that's how Elon does these events now. He rolls it out. It's a big production. Yeah. They get a lot of viewers who are watching on the Tesla website, and then he goes off stage. It's not your traditional automaker where afterwards, remember when Ford did their Mach-E the other day, the Mustang Mach-E? I mean, Jim Hackett was there. So was Bill Ford. They were answering questions. And that's how it goes with almost every automaker, not with Tesla. They do their unveils. It is a Hollywood production. Rarely do you hear from Elon Musk at those events. Dan Ives is here. He's the managing director of equity research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, first of all, what's your take on the truck? And then we'll talk about your take on the stock. Yeah, I mean, look, I think in terms of the launch, I, mean, I, I kind of viewed it as a disaster in terms of other launch events, in terms of what we saw with the crack glass, just from an optical perspective, like Joe was saying. In terms of the truck, it's the wow factor, the Mad Max, Blade Runner type thing. But it comes down to, from an investor perspective, is it niche or mass market? I think it's more niche. I think for this, to get anything north of 100K units is going to be difficult. That's what the street's focused on. I don't view it as really gaining any share versus Ford or GM which is really the big question going into last night. Yeah, the, the bigger question around the stock at this point may be what happened in the third quarter. They had so much momentum. They did better than anticipated with earnings. Can they keep that up? Well, that's the, I think it's a fork in the road situation because they, they had you. the profitability. You obviously seen the stock uh, react, you know, a, a massive sort of rebound. You know, can they continue that profitability and demand going in 2020? I think right now that's going to be difficult, especially given demand in the U.S. Europe has been ramping, you know, China and Giga 3. But right now I think this is sort of the next one to two quarters will determine if this is a two to two fifty dollar stock or four hundred to four hundred fifty and we continue to be more cautious here. Phil there's is there a vacuum cleaner? You know? <laughs> you can charge you can charge an ATV in the back of it. I know that. Oh, well then maybe you could uh, charge look, there's up a lot of power that you'll have you with that. You can charge a dustbuster things off of and it. Maybe yeah. be That's okay. the big thing for Andrew. The Sorkin uh, family just likes to have, wants to be able to have a charged up dustbuster inside the vehicle at all times. 
Next on Squawk Pod, former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb calls for responsible vaping policies. There is a way to carve around what the adults are using responsibly and what the kids are abusing. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Osorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. President Trump's going to hold a meeting at the White House regarding regulating e-cigarettes. Eamon Jevers joins us now with more uh, from Washington. Uh, good morning, Eamon. Yeah, good morning, Joe. They're calling this a listening session at the White House later today. It's at 1.45 p.m. East Coast time. A-, a lot of the top stakeholders in this vaping debate are going to be uh, meeting with the president to discuss what to do about vaping, particularly teenage and youth vaping. The White House, you remember, proposed a ban on flavored e-cigarettes back in September Nothing has happened really since then in terms of the absolute finalization of any particular plans in the White House, but they insist that everything is still going forward. Here's the statement that the White House gave us on today's meeting. They say there's a serious problem among our youth and their growing addiction to e-cigarettes. The policy-making process is not stalled. It continues to move forward. This meeting will allow the president and other administration officials an opportunity to hear from a large group representing all sides as we continue to develop responsibility guidelines that protect public health and the American people. Take a look at some of the attendees we expect to be uh, at the event today, representatives of some of the big uh, tobacco companies, uh, Altria, Reynolds, also the American Vaping Association, the American Lung Association, and the American Cancer Society, uh, Cancer Action Network, uh, all expected to be at this meeting today. So a wide range of voices speaking to the president. And you remember, Joe, uh, back in September, the president talked about Melania Trump's interest in this issue because of their son, Barron. Uh, the president said that Melania was particularly focused on this issue because of the rise of teen vaping. But the politics of this are really unsettled. Vaping is so new, uh, it's not like tobacco or other things where we know uh, exactly where the politics shake out. There could be some political damage here for the president uh, because vaping may be popular among his base. So there might be some people uh, in and around the White House who are watching the political ramifications of this as well as the public health ramifications, guys. Yeah, I know that that was the... uh, was the narrative when the, the backtracking started that uh, in certain in, in Trump country there's a lot of vapors I guess I don't know yeah smokers vapors 
Yeah, and that's the question. We don't really know how this shakes out politically, but that could right. be right. And, and the president could be facing a bunch of angry single-issue voters if they're, if they're vapors, and that's important to them. And then there's the, the argument that the industry makes and others make yeah. uh, that vaping is important to get cigarette smokers right. off. Transition. It gives you a transition. And then and you got you the normal libertarian types, anti-government types Grover, that, Grover that, just, think that just don't want that. nanny yep. state. Uh, you Grover know. Norquist is going to be sending a... Uh, sending a representative to this one today. Yeah, I mean, right, it's nanny state. You know, don't, right. don't tell me what I can do. So what right. if it's bad for me? That's my business. I had a, had a, a, a don't tell this new entrant to the race, but I had a 17-ounce sugary drink the other day. Not in New York, though. <laughs> uh, not in New York, but I, I did right, right. that Outside clandestinely out of New Jersey. I, I don't want anyone, hopefully no one will hear about that. Uh, well, if you have birds. a good contact, they can smuggle it in. Yeah. Can't wait to have the whole country like. Oh, stop! All it. right, thank you. I can't uh, believe th- it. Th- thank you. You bet. You know, everybody the, mo- get, the most everybody the most, getting stopped and frisked, and then the most accomplished, then, uh, the most accomplished, competent person, Giuliani. That that Let's go. Let's go. Let Take me it easy. Let me get this guy. Come on. Hold this for a moment. In a recent op-ed, former FDA commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb detailed what he thinks the administration should be doing about vaping. Dr. Gottlieb joins us right now. We should point out he's also a CNBC contributor and a member of the Pfizer board. And, Scott, you have thought long and hard about this. You would like to see some pretty strict regulations coming down on this. But what do you think will be happening at the White House today? What do you think is happening behind the scenes? Obviously, you know a lot of the players. Well, look, I think this is a legitimate process. I think they're trying to back into a policymaking process right now. And so this is a legitimate meeting they're having right now to try to gather some stakeholder input and have the president hear from different voices if, you know, if the concern is the vape shops, which is where I think the concern is resting right now, and the idea that if you put in a universal flavor ban, you'll basically shut down these adult-only vape shops, I think there's a way to carve around the vape shops and still achieve a lot from a public health standpoint. And you can even make a public health argument why you might exempt the vape shops for the time being. So if a vape shop is adult-only, if it age restricts to, to allow people into the store, you can allow that store to continue to sell flavored products on a direct relationship to a customer. What you need to go after are these mass-produced products that are cheap, disposable, very sleek and attractive, that kids are buying in gas stations and convenience stores, because that's what the kids are abusing. It's typically not these open-tank, big contraptions sold in the adult vape shops that the kids are using, because those things are hard to conceal. They produce large plumes of vapor, and the kids don't like them. That, that is the kind of pushback. Grover Norquist and, and libertarians may come up with this idea that, look, as Eamon mentioned, you know, stay out of my business. This is my decision on what to make. Your concern from the beginning has been the huge epidemic that's been taking place among children. How, how right. about that? I mean, it's, it's gotten worse, not better. No, it's gotten worse. And Juul actually increased their market share among kids over a course of time when everyone was, you know, objectifying them and pointing out that kids were abusing their products. So it's quite extraordinary. I think that there is a way to target the portion of the market um, of the products that the kids are using. And you can consider taking the cartridge based products, these disposable products off of the market entirely pending applications, successful applications with the FDA, where they need to prove that they provide a net public health benefit. Because you can argue right now, they don't have enough redeeming public health value given all the youth used to remain on the market. And carve out the stuff that the adults tend to use, which are the open tank systems sold in these adult shops. But you've got to make sure the adult shops age restrict. Remember, the United Kingdom 
doesn't have the youth problem that we have, and they have a large population of smokers transitioning to vaping. But the difference is that most of the products sold in the U.K. are the, are the open-tank vaping systems, these larger right. contraptions, and the nicotine content is lower. So you don't have the 5% nicotine that the kids like because it gives Scott, them a Scott, let's quick get buzz. political. You know the president. What do you think is going to happen here? What does he have to be persuaded? Who's talking to him on either side? Because he clearly was ready to go on this and then, until he wasn't. Yeah, look, I think that the reporting's been accurate, that they're legitimately concerned about sh- shutting down these small mom-and-pop shops and these adult vape stores. And again, from a public health standpoint, I can make a rational argument that those shops... Scott, you're talking about it in a very practical way. This is, not a, this is not a philosophical conversation. This is a political conversation. I think they can carve around those vape shops. That, the bottom line is I think they can do it. I outlined it in the Washington Post. I think you can say if, it, if an adult vape shop age restricts right. and is selling to adults, you can allow them to continue to sell the flavored products. And what we're going to go after are these mass-produced, cartridge-based products. They have to either come off the market or take all their flavors off the market. The problem with just taking the flavors off the market in those products is I think the kids are going to start using the tobacco flavor. Because I have a different use- question for you. Who is going to come after? I want to know. This is the thing that I don't understand politically. If the president really is against vaping, which I think he is, across the board, by the way, I mean, across the board, this idea that he's going to somehow lose his base because he's going to he's going to actually go after something which would be which would benefit the public and and the public health. And he's going to lose his base to who he's going to the base is going to going to transfer itself to Elizabeth Warren or to to, to Joe Biden because they like him better. I don't understand this whole the whole thing. So cockamamie to me that I don't get it. Look, I don't. I haven't looked at the polling data. I don't know that they necessarily are looking polling data. Those are the reports, right? That they're worried about the political implications. Right. But there is a legitimate argument to be made here that there are adults who are using these products to transition off of combustible cigarettes onto vaping products, and you don't want to just sweep the market of everything. You want to leave something for the adults. So what you can leave for the adults are these open tank systems sold in stores that age restrict. You have to be over 18 to get in the store. And then you take everything else off the market. So you preserve some portion of the market for adults who legitimately are using these products to quit uh, smoking. Now, you know I'm not a big proponent of this altogether, but I think that there's a way to carve around what the adults are using responsibly and what the kids are abusing. Remember, if we look at what's happened over the last two years, what's been overshadowed by the e-cigarette epidemic, and it is an epidemic of youth use, is smoking rates have plummeted and youth smoking rates have plummeted. And you have to acknowledge that some of that, at least, is a result of the vaping, that some adults are using these products to transition off of cigarettes onto these vaping products. So you don't want to disadvantage them entirely. So I think there's a way to carve around this, and it also helps them carve around the political concerns of shutting down these small shops. That sounds practical. Scott, it sounds like it's common sense. It sounds like it's a plan that could get done, but will it? I think it will. I mean, I think some. I, I think that something's going to get done here. They seem very committed. They wouldn't be putting out these statements, doubling down on the fact that they're going to do something if they didn't intend to do something. I think they they were you know spooked by the politics of this and the pushback, and so now they're backing into a policy process and an open process, taking some dialogue, and they'll come out with something that probably carves around a little bit. The vape stores. And I think that that's a fine place to land from a public health standpoint. I think I will take a glass half full here if we can get these pod-based, cartridge-based products either off the market entirely or severely restrict the kids' access to them. All right. Scott, thank you. It's great to see you. Thanks a lot.
That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. I'm not going to say anything until Sorkin says something because I, I'm afraid that we'll, we might agree. I don't even know what to say. I don't either. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, rate and subscribe. We'll meet back here on Monday. Have a good weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.